Uh, we're going to move straight on to discuss, uh, having learned about how we've messed up the handling of this crisis, how we're now going to avoid the next one. Um, and we're still, in some sense, climbing out of the mess uh, of the current crisis. But I think it's not too early to take stock and to see whether we have put in place, whether we've learned the right lessons, whether we've put in place policies, regulations that make the next, next crisis somewhat less likely. Have we made the system any safer? Have we set up unfulfillable expectations of central banks? And does today's monetary course contain the seeds of tomorrow's problems? I hope that's, those are the kinds of subjects um, that this terrific panel is going to address. I'm going to introduce them very briefly. There are, um, their fulsome and distinguished bios are in your packets. I'm not going to read them all out. First, we'll hear from Tom Hernick, Vice Chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and known, um, I'm sure, to all of you as well as, of course, the very distinguished former president of the Kansas City Fed and host of the most, uh, most uh, salubrious um, monetary event in the calendar, I think. I'll, Certainly I'll, the most... I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then we'll hear from Jeff Myron, uh, because Jeff, I understand, has to go out and is going to come back to join us for questions. Uh, Jeff is Senior Fellow here at Cato and Director of Undergraduate Studies in Economics at Harvard. Um, then we'll hear from uh, Larry White, uh, who is Professor of Economics at George Mason, author of numerous books on monetary policy. The most recent, I think, is The Clash of Economics. Uh, and finally, from Bob Hetzel, last but absolutely not least, Senior Economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Uh, and I didn't know that you'd done your thesis work under Milton Friedman. I did. So that was the... Uh, the the, the highlight that I pulled out from your bio. Um, welcome Good. to you too. Um, let's start without further ado from Tom. And I'm going to be very strict, I'm afraid, on time. So I'm going to start how waving much, things. How at much you. time do I have? <laughs> Go ahead. Well, thank you very much. And, and thanks for the uh, plug for the Jackson Symposium, which um, we, of course, are very proud of. Um, the, the topic is preventing the next financial crisis and so forth. And, and your last comment, though, on introducing that topic was, are we sowing the seeds for the next one? And I'll start there by saying, yes, uh, <laughs> we are. And there are other people on this panel who will describe that probably much better than I will. And I'm going to focus on the supervision elements, uh, since I am now vice chairman, or uh, I should say director of the FDIC. And I want to talk about that a little bit. And I also think it's interesting, uh, the, the title and the comments, because I think many, and perhaps most in this room, if not all in this room, are skeptical of claims that the financial system has been reformed, that too big to fail has been addressed, and the taxpayer will not have to pay for the bailout of firms in the, in the future. <clears throat> and if you're not skeptical, then uh, I would be disappointed in you. For the past 100 years, government officials and bank CEOs have insisted that new policies, new rules, new laws, combined with greater market discipline, resolution schemes, and enhanced supervision will ensure that future financial crises, should they occur, will be more effectively handled. In the U.S., the creation of the Federal Reserve itself and then the FDIC were distant examples or are distant examples in which such assurances were given to the public. More recently, the 1991 U.S. Uh, FDIC Improvement Act, FDICIA, was to end public bailouts of failing banks, and, and in particular, they were to end too big to fail. 
Such assurances seemed even more significant following a 1991 Treasury report that found that too-big-to-fail resolution policies used for six of the largest banks cost the taxpayer in current dollars $5 billion. If only the cost of the six largest bailouts in this recent crisis were just $5 billion. But unfortunately, and this is maybe, uh, I think, the key, incentives matter, and the incentives towards risk among the largest financial firms remain basically unchanged from the pre-crisis times. Despite the enormous regulatory burdens placed on financial firms post Dodd-Frank, they uh, continue to be incented to leverage. With time, we can be confident that our financial system will once again, I think, become more highly leveraged and the economic system become more fragile as a result. So the point is to change outcomes, you must change drivers or the or elements of it, and that's what I would like to mention. First of all, <clears throat> the, the, the idea is that with the safety net, uh, you, you, you change all the incentives that are in the game, and you drive towards uh, moral hazard, and you drive towards leverage around that moral hazard, which creates its own uh, set of consequences in time. So as I've addressed this and talked to uh, many people about it, and I'm very interested in your reactions, but assuming we can't eliminate the safety net, and I think that would be most difficult, then there are three things that I think have to be done at, at a minimum. Now, there may be more things that you, and you may have better ideas, but these are three that I have. First of all, I think it's important to recall that following the Great Depression, when the safety net was greatly expanded with FDIC insurance, which was in addition to the discount window that had already been established with the Federal Reserve. I think people did realize, uh, given the studies that have been done about the Great Depression, that you needed to at least uh, address some elements of the moral hazard that was being created. And so the trade-off was we will put FDIC insurance on the commercial banks because they are so important to the payment system, to the deposit taking, and to the intermediation process around that from uh, depositor, saver, to borrower. And therefore, they forced out the higher risk investment banking, broker dealer activities uh, away from the safety net. And for several decades, partly because of the experience of the Great Depression, but also because I think of the structure, we had relative stability in uh, our system. So the point is that then we came uh, with that stability, people began to say, well, it'd be more competitive if we allow investment banks and commercial banks to compete more directly, the consumer will be better served, and so we will break down those barriers. And in doing that, <clears throat> you not only created uh, perhaps uh, what you intended in the sense of more competition, but you also expanded, if you will, the coverage of the safety net to ever more risky activities. Uh, and the consequences of that are that you leverage more of the industry around the advantages of having the safety net, of not being held uh, to a very strict set of uh, consequences should you um, not engage in safe practices that the market could uh, identify. So it didn't take uh, even a decade, literally, for the industry to greatly, uh, to, to greatly leverage up 
uh, to engage in ever-increasing risky activities, and eventually uh, we came to uh, the, the, the crisis of 2008. So my point here is that if we're going to continue with the safety net, and I think we are, then you have to think about narrowing its coverage to what it was intended to cover, and that is the commercial banking industry narrowly defined, the payment system and the intermediation process around that. And that is a big chore, I realize. But if you don't do that, then you, might, you are on your way to making them officially public utilities or nationalize them because your safety net is at extreme risk. So we need to narrow it. And that's why I proposed uh, in a working paper to move out the broker-dealer trading activities into separate corporate entities uh, in the sense of sp spinning them out to the shareholders as separate corporate entities so that you reestablish the narrow coverage of the safety net or at least attempt to do so, and I think in that way provide greater safety. Now, I am often told that the largest banks were not the cause and that I have this wrong, and that may be the case. But when they point to Lehman Brothers as a narrow bank uh, and therefore uh, proves the exception, I say, in my opinion, Lehman was a commercial bank in every sense. Uh, number one, it had very short-term liabilities, deposits called money markets. Uh, they were not marked to uh, a net asset value on a daily basis. They were understood by most consumers, at least, to be deposits, and they were treated as deposits, and it wasn't a whole lot different, although it was on a wholesale basis with the repo market, especially with the, uh, with the uh, bankruptcy exemption that allowed you also to take long-term assets and secure your overnight deposits uh, with those assets. It only made the, the, the vulnerabilities greater. And there was, I think, an implied guarantee uh, as, as these institutions build in complexity, build in size, that the government would in fact take them over. And that moral hazard then allowed them to leverage up to incredibly uh, significant uh, degrees. So uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, the recipients of the TARP in that room uh, were mostly some of the largest banks. That doesn't mean they were going to fail, but they were, they were clearly at the, at the benefit benefited from the taxpayers' uh, support and, and I think would have uh, had more, uh, more problems should they not have uh, been helped in that TARP arrangement. So you need to narrow the safety net. Number two is we need to rethink the capital approach. Uh, I'm not a supporter of Basel. Everyone knows that because it is too complicated and too easily gamed uh, uh, as, it's, as it's introduced. With that much complexity, uh, the whole idea is to remove and, and to shrink your risk assets so that your capital ratios go up. Uh, under Basel I, I think the ratio of risk-based to total assets was around 75%. Uh, before 2007, it had shrunk to just over 60-some percent, and that's the whole point of the exercise for many of those institutions. And when the crisis was emerging in 2007, the advertised capital ratios of the largest banks, total capital risk-based assets was around 11%. When the tangible, that is the capital with all the deferred tax uh, uh, benefits, the goodwill and so forth were out of the balance sheet, that ratio was less than 3%, less than three cents for every dollar of assets to absorb loss. And therefore you could see why when the crisis occurred, uh, the, the industry imploded because you had to shrink your balance sheets to survive 
uh, at, have any chance of surviving. And that's exactly what happened, and it actually hurt credit. So we need to simplify that, and I, I think we ought to have a measure that's uh, uh, easily calculated, understood, and enforced. It has clarity, and that's a tangible capital ratio, because that's all that matters in a crisis. If you ask most fixed income managers, fixed income managers what they look at, it's tangible capital. That's what they rely on. That tells them how strong or weak it really is. So we need to go to that system uh, globally. And I think the debate at Basel should be what the level should be intangible and what the transition period to that level should be. And it is striking uh, when they say um, it's, it, it would have an enormous effect. It would have a beneficial effect, I think. The, the top 10 banks in the United States have a tangible tangible equity capital ratio, the tangible assets ratio of about 6%. But the top 10 banks just under 100 billion have a ratio that's over 9%. The top 10 that's under 50 billion have a ratio that's over 9%. And the community bank has a ratio that's nearly 9%. So most banks, not the majority in terms of assets, but most banks would be very close to a 10% level uh, out, of the uh, out of the box. The other point of this is, when you go back before the safety net was created, and you look at what the market demanded, the average capital, tangible capital, equity capital and assets uh, in, uh, uh, in a period before 1914 and in a period uh, just after the Great Depression uh, was 13 to 16%. Uh, and therefore, you can see what the market demands when you don't have the safety net propping up uh, and creating the moral hazard. The final thing is, all right, if it's a minimum capital ratio in these narrow uh, commercial banks, um, then what's the right with all these risks and the changing the, uh, of, the, uh, of the nature of the, of the industry? My point is there that you need to, if you will, reestablish bank supervision as a tool. Remember, it is the third pillar of Basel, as a tool to identify risk. Uh, I think today it's too, um, it, it skims the surface only. There are methods, uh, and not just the stress test, but there are methods to examine the quality of the assets by sampling across the, uh, the industry, estimating what the condition of those firms are, and then assessing additional capital should they have a higher risk profile. And there are ways uh, that we do that now, and we can do it more, I think, specifically if we decide to use that tool more vigorously than we have in the past. So I think it's extremely important that we rethink uh, how, we're, how we're looking at this industry. We will never end financial crisis. Capitalism and fractional reserve systems are in themselves volatile. But the question is, how do you work through those crises? Should you have the government be there in every case to bail out? If so, then nationalize them now and get it over with. Or do you want the market to drive? So if, you're going to, if you prefer the latter, you have to narrow the coverage, uh, increase the ability for the market to identify and deal with the crisis without the government being as much involved as it was in the last crisis. So those are, my, those are my thoughts on the topic, and I will look forward to the discussion that follows. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. That was a terrific start. Um, very bracing analysis and, and terrific concrete proposals. Let's now hear from Jeff Myron. morning. Uh, my apologies in advance for the fact that I have to duck out. I've been 
uh, called upon by a higher authority and told I should uh, attend a meeting upstairs. So I will come back as soon as I can. So the subject of this morning's session is avoiding the next crisis. And the obvious question that's meant to address is, how can we avoid the next crisis? Maybe it's the libertarian contrarian in me. But I want to tackle a somewhat different question, which is, should we be trying to avoid financial crises? The answer might seem obvious, but I will argue that if policymakers focus on avoiding crises, they're going to adopt policies that typically fail to avoid crises and that are counterproductive from a longer term, from a broader perspective. And to make that argument, I'm going to talk about four points. First, I want to stress that avoiding crises in and of themselves is not the right, or at least not the main goal for policy. Second, as a matter of theory, the negative effects of financial crises are not necessarily large. They might be in some models, but not necessarily. Third, as a matter of evidence, the impacts of crises okay, do not seem to be consistently large, although in a few cases, perhaps they were large. Fourth, whatever the negative effects of crises, the anti-crisis policies, the treatment, is almost certainly worse than a disease. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying there's, any, there's nothing that we should do that might end up reducing the frequency of crises. What I want to argue is that crisis avoidance per se should not be the focus because uh, should not be the focus. It's potentially a beneficial consequence of, of reducing government, but it's not the thing that we should be targeting directly. So let's first think about what the appropriate objective is for economic policy. Most economists, most non-economists, would suggest that the single most important objective is a high level of income per capita or in a dynamic world, a high growth rate for income per capita. That is, the primary objective of policy should be maximizing the size of the economic pie. The question is then, do financial crises play an independent causal role in lowering the growth rate of output? If so, then avoiding crises might be sensible as an intermediate target. If, however, crises have only modest impacts on output growth, and in particular, if crises are mainly the symptom of output declines rather than the cause, then targeting the crises themselves is less obviously the right goal. So a subsequent question, the theoretical question, is whether, as a matter of theory, financial crises are necessarily bad for the economy. Popular opinion and much economic modeling, much of the economics profession, now takes that conclusion as given, but it's not the only defensible view. I don't have time to go through the theory, the sort of pro and con sort of models, but no one can dispute that nothing in economic theory dictates that there are large effects of financial crises. It is fundamentally an empirical question. So I'm going to need the clicker. So I want to now look at some evidence on the relationship between financial crises and the subsequent behavior of the economy. No? <laughs> Getting there, I think. OK, there we go. So figure one is annual data on industrial production for the U.S. for the period from 1790 to 1915. It's a fairly recently constructed. Going too far. Okay. Okay. That was a crisis. <laughs> um, okay. So th these are fairly recently constructed data uh, by an economist named Joseph Davis, um, and. Uh, it's interesting because it's for the period when there was no Federal Reserve before 1914 and in which the U.S. indeed had a number of financial crises. The striking thing about that graph is the steady increase in production over the period with only minor indications of recessions, panics, anything else. Indeed, if you were not already aware of the dates of the so-called financial panics, I think you'd have a very hard time picking them out from the graph. 
It turns out that historians date the main panics in the US as mainly in the 1830s, 1857, 1893, and 1907. And if you look hard, you can see that there are declines in output around those dates, but they're not especially severe or persistent. Indeed, Davis, who constructed these data, states in his abstract, okay, the index also demonstrates that the pernicious deflationary depressions that purportedly followed the financial panics in 1837 and 1873 were actually rather mild recessions when expressed in real output. So the pre-Fed data do not suggest a major impact of panics on the economy's growth rate. A different way to look at this. Oh. <laughs> to look at comparisons. Take several clicks for every, there we go. Okay, comparisons of real GNP growth between the pre-19, <laughs> ah, the lags are long and variable. Yeah. That's because we're shooting. <laughs> long and variable, I like that. Okay, I'll try to be more patient. Maybe we'll get it right. I'm very sorry. Okay, there we go. Um, what the table shows, and I'm going to focus especially on the data series. There are three different versions of GNP data available. One, I think, is generally regarded as most trustworthy, one from Christina Romer, so it's sort of in between the other two, which shows that the average growth rate of output okay, has indeed been higher in the post-World <laughs> War II period than it was pre-Fed, but not by a ton. Okay, so if you want to make a case that panics had some effect, you can point to those data and say, that's consistent with the data, okay? but you don't see a huge effect okay, of the presence of panics in the pre-Fed period on the average growth rate of output. So if panics are not contributing that much to lower output growth, it's certainly less obvious that policies should be specifically trying to avoid panics. That's especially true if policies have their own negatives, as I'll argue in a second. But before turning to that, let me address the two elephants in the room, the Great Depression and the financial crisis of 2008. Obviously, advocates of the view that crises are bad would point to those two episodes in particular, okay? but I have several caveats we should keep in mind. First, those two episodes are two episodes of many involving crises. We should pay attention to dogs that bark, but also to the dogs that don't bark. Okay? In the pre-Fed period, there were many minor crises that never turned into major crises, and major crises that were not associated with big output declines. So if we look at the broad accounting of crises and output declines, we don't see such a strong or consistent effect. Second, if we look at data, for these two episodes, can you see the blue line there? Okay. Okay. This is industrial production for the US from mid 2007 to mid 2009, which, and you can pick out 2008 September. That's there. So, about half of the decline in industrial production had already occurred before Lehman Brothers failed in September of 2008. Okay. Similarly, if we look at the Great Depression, okay. this has a measure of industrial production for the US from 28 okay, through 1934. The red line is Ben Bernanke's suggested measure of when there were financial crises during the Great Depression. It's the deposits in failed banks, in banks that failed in each particular month. Okay. Again, what you can see is that there was a huge decline in industrial production before the major panics occurred. There's no, not much obvious correlation between the incidence of the panics and the output declines, with the exception of this one incident. So that's the bank holiday when banks were closed by 
law, okay, all the banks, most didn't reopen. Of course, that's precisely the moment when output starts to grow again, when we, in effect, force a bunch of banks to fail. Okay? So something was going on in these episodes other than simply uh, panics causing output losses. Third, and most importantly, governments undertook a large range of problematic policies in response to the early stages of both these contractions, and those probably explain some of the declines, regardless of whether panics played some role as well. In the case of the Great Depression, we had problematic monetary policy, trade policy, fiscal policy in the early years of the downturn. In the case of the 2008-09 recession, we had misguided stimulus, wasteful stimulus, costly financial regulation, likelihood of redistributive taxation, the demonization of business, failure to address entitlements, Obamacare, and on and on. On a related note, Reinhardt and Rogoff have emphasized that economic recoveries from financial crises tend to be slow. That's a pretty well-documented phenomenon, with possibly a few exceptions. But the question is why? Why are the, crisis, the uh, recessions with panics slower than, or longer than most? One explanation is, consistent with Vernon Smith's talk, I think, the structural imbalances that cause the crisis, such as the overbuilding of the housing stock, take time to undo. So it's going to be a slow recovery, not because of the crisis per se, but because of the factors that caused the crisis in the first place. Another explanation of the correlation between long, slow, uh, severe downturns and crises is crises, even more than regular recessions, give policymakers the political opportunity to enact new, nutty, wealth-destroying policies. So of course the recovery is slow as the economy tries to react, but that doesn't tell you it was the financial crisis. That was just the excuse for more big government. Okay? Under either of these interpretations, financial panics are, of course, correlated with, associated with, worse than average recessions without themselves necessarily playing a causal role. So to summarize so far, I don't think we can conclude that crises play no role in generating the output declines. They probably do to some degree. But neither should we assume them to be so deleterious in and of themselves that policy should be obsessed with the crises. The appropriate response or the way to put on avoiding crises should depend on both the potential cost and potential benefits. Okay? Uh, we need to think about both sides. So, now let's take as given that the crises do play some causal role via the Ben Bernanke hypotheses about asymmetric information and all that. Okay? Does it mean that policies to avoid these crises are beneficial? Not necessarily. Even if the crises are harmful, the treatment may be worse. The crucial aspect of anti-crisis policy is inevitably going to be too big to fail and similar doctrines, under which policy tries to prevent the failure of large financial institutions via bailouts, credit, uh, central bank lending, targeted purchases of problematic assets, and so on. The standard justification, okay, which can be you know, represented in certain economic models, is that these fails will disrupt the economy's lending mechanism and therefore contract investment and output. Whatever the merits of that view, however, too big to fail has potentially very serious cost. Most importantly, the insurance against risk implies excessive uh, risk-taking by certain institutions, excess lending, and excess investment in, okay, not just the bets, but the actual allocation of goods and services to the wrong projects in society. The excess buildup of the housing stock during the housing boom is a textbook example. A different effect of actions taken under too big to fail is a nibbling away of the notion that policy should be neutral toward various sectors, toward various kinds of investments, and so on, because that way we avoid crony capitalism, we avoid incentivizing the private sector to create and, and try to chase rents, rather than simply incenting them to innovate, to cut costs, to compete. For example, now that everyone knows that the housing and the auto sectors have received these bailouts, it's a much smaller belief, excuse me, smaller leap to believe that other sectors will also 
get bailouts. Ben Bernanke can scream from the highest rooftops, as he has, that he would never start buying up municipal debt if states and towns start failing. But he's not going to be Fed chairman forever. And even Bernanke is going to be more inclined to do that, having undertaken the massive purchases of housing debt and bailed out that particular sector. That expansion of the Fed's mission okay, means far greater scope for politicization of monetary policy with disastrous effects. So even people who believe that the crises generate large costs should recognize that trying to avoid the crises can also have large costs. The standard presumption is that the costs of the crises are so big that they swamp the cost of too big to fail. I'm not at all convinced of that, given the kind of evidence that we, we discussed. So to conclude, my point on this, on the crisis, is part of a larger concern. People don't like volatility. They don't like in economic insecurity. And they've come to believe that government can reduce volatility okay, via stabilization policy, too big to fail, and so on. But that's a pipe dream. Governments do at least as much to contribute to volatility as they do to reduce it. And their attempts to reduce volatility can have very significant costs. So I want to argue that the right goal for policy is growth, productivity, efficiency, whatever label you want to use, or in my view, more or less synonymously or equivalently, maximizing liberty and freedom. Okay? But all of those are going to mean less government, not more government. This preferred approach might end up reducing the number of financial crises, and that's fine. But that's just a side benefit. But I want to emphasize that we should focus on these ultimate objectives okay, rather than on the intermediate targets, like avoiding crises. Why? Because trying to avoid crises will inevitably lead us to policies like too big to fail, policies that promise gain, reduce volatility, without pain, okay, the moral hazard from too big to fail, okay, and that's going to be disastrous. Those policies don't deliver, and they'll always end up being used as excuses for more government rather than less. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope, uh, I hope you do come back for the questions. I'm sure there will be plenty of them. Let's now turn to Professor White. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here for the 30th uh, Cato Monetary Conference. I actually spoke at the first one. Uh, <laughs> I'm older than I look. No, maybe not. Um, so I want to talk in a very big think way about uh, the problem of having a robust, or as the term I'm going to use because it has more cachet, an anti-fragile uh, banking system. What does that term mean? It, it was a term invented by uh, Nassim Taleb uh, in a book that's about to come out, or maybe has just come out. Um, anti-fragility. What it means is the opposite of fragility, right? So fragility is the property of falling apart under a moderate stress. People sometimes think the opposite of that is robustness, but robustness means uh, basically not being affected by moderate stresses. Anti-fragility is the property of getting stronger in response to moderate stresses. Uh, an example is you go to the gym to exercise because by putting stress on your muscles, you make them grow stronger. So I want to talk about how we might develop anti-fragile uh, banking and monetary systems. Uh, and of course, there are marginal reforms, as have been discussed already, <laughs> uh, to reduce fragility. Uh, but I think to achieve anti-fragility, we might have to make a very serious turn away from state management to marketplace discipline. Uh, 
And in banking, that means not only ending too big to fail bailouts of uninsured creditors uh, and counterparties, but thinking about peeling back other forms of taxpayer-backed depositor and creditor guarantees, and with apologies to Tom, possibly even the FDIC. Um, I don't really have time to talk about monetary policy, but I've done that on previous occasions. Um, there it means an end to discretionary central banking, or since I'm among friends, maybe all central banking. Um, and, and the reason is, uh, the, or the reason would be, if we can make this case, that uh, deposit guarantees, and of course, contrary to the intention, and despite the fact that they stopped runs in the 1930s, in the long run have fostered uh, moral hazard and contributed to banking system fragility. And central banking, by which I mean the centralization of money issue and the elimination of market-based disciplinary mechanisms and error correction mechanisms on money creation have contributed to monetary system fragility. But I only have time to talk about banking here. Um, now, I'm up against uh, a professional consensus when I say that banking systems are not naturally fragile. Uh, many economists and certainly many regulators, and yesterday I had the pleasure of hearing uh, Timothy Geithner speak at my uh, university, uh, will object that it's, it's a fool's errand to try to make the banking system anti-fragile because banking is naturally fragile. Uh, that is, it's ordinarily fragile in the absence of government guarantees. And in that case, the best you can do is to mitigate fragility. Uh, and of course, the, the standard source of this argument or the most cited model of banking in the economics literature today is the Diamond Divvig model, which depicts a very fragile bank. Uh, a depositor run will very easily break it and a run can very easily occur, uh, triggered merely by self-justifying worry that others will run. And then a form of deposit insurance is shown to uh, fix the problem, and it's assumed won't create other problems. And a lot of people take this, pro this model and, and the large literature built on it uh, as showing that any modern banking system is naturally fragile. And people whose uh, knowledge of banking history is limited to the US and the, the panics that uh, Jeff Myron just mentioned uh, find it plausible to think that banking is naturally fragile because there were financial panics uh, in the US. But if you take a more wide-ranging look at theory and empirical evidence, you find that banking is not naturally fragile. Uh, I quote Calamiris and Gorton on this. Uh, you see that banking panics are not happening everywhere. They're not inherent in the contracts that bankers write. It depends on the kinds of contracts they write and the institutional structure within which they operate. Uh, now, I could, and I have in other places, picked apart the Diamond Divvig model, but here there's a more general point to make, which is the view that banking institutions are naturally fragile is rather implausibly anti-Darwinian. That is, it defies the principle of natural selection or survival of the fittest. If financial institutions are inherently prone to collapse, or those that are inherently prone to collapse, uh, should be expected to collapse, given a few centuries at least, uh, and then they would disappear over time while sturdier intermediaries should be expected to survive. And so the inherent fragility view of banking just can't explain how modern banking uh, has survived, much less flourished, in the seven-some centuries uh, since it emerged around 1200 AD, 
I guess it's eight centuries now, but seven centuries before the introduction of government deposit guarantees, uh, lenders of last resort and uh, national deposit insurance. You can see anti-fragility in uh, historical free banking regimes, by which I mean systems where legal restrictions were at a minimum, uh, legal restrictions and legal privileges were at a minimum. Uh, Australia, Canada, Chile, New England in the 19th century, Scotland, Sweden, Switzerland. These systems were not without bank failures, but they emerged from bank failures chastened and stronger. So they fulfill the criterion uh, of getting better aftershocks, right? But a system that relies on bailouts is not gonna be that kind of system. And I cite a famous example from Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations when he talks about the failure of a bank called the Douglas Heron and Company, better known as the Air Bank. Uh, Hugh Rockoff has described this as the Lehman Brothers of its day. <laughs> uh, the bank failed spectacularly, but nobody rescued it. Uh, it caused a or it was associated with a recession, but there was a quick recovery from that. It brought down some small banks, but not any of the larger banks in the system. And the system as a whole, this is the important thing, recovered quickly. So the system began uh, growing quickly again uh, in a healthy way. And a report on the causes of the crash uh, a few years later uh, led to their understanding that it was imprudence that brought it about and helped make bankers more aware of what they needed to do to avoid imprudence. Uh, and one historian says there were fewer complaints of incompetent behavior in respect of provincial Scottish banks for the remainder of the century, right? So that's an example of what I mean by uh, anti-fragility. Now, that's just one example, of course. We need to study lots of examples to make this uh, more persuasive. But our current system is one in which uh, legal restrictions have, and privileges have made the system fragile, and I don't need to argue that at any length. We've, we've observed it. It doesn't depend on whether you think uh, Lehman Brothers should not have been allowed to close a system where you can't allow Lehman Brothers to close is clearly a, fragile, a system that's too fragile. Um, all right, skipping ahead. Um, to, to eliminate uh, the moral hazard of uh, gambling with other people's money, with, with the expectation of taxpayer money, we need a system in which the government clearly has no legal authority uh, to bail out insolvent firms, insolvent financial firms or other firms. Tying the government's hands in that way would actually reduce fragility. If everybody knew, uh, as, as John Cochran has written, if everybody knew that Lehman wouldn't be bailed out, then the fact that Lehman wasn't bailed out wouldn't have changed anybody's forecasts about the probability of them being bailed out, and so it wouldn't have uh, accelerated uh, any panic. We all know the Dodd-Frank bill does not credibly end too big to fail. Uh, I go into some of the details about that. Now, it's true that we have a fragility in US uh, banking history, but principally in the 19th century because there were legal restrictions that prevented banks from credibly uh, assuring their depositors that they had enough assets to withstand, uh, and they were well enough diversified to withstand shocks. Banks were very poorly diversified because we didn't allow branch banking. Uh, today, the US banks are weakened not by restrictions of that sort, but by privileges. Uh, the moral hazard problem created by 
uh, deposit insurance and made, of course, even worse by too big to fail. We haven't achieved robustness, much less anti-fragility, until no single financial firm is considered systematically critical or too important to close. It has to be credible that a promise to make no bailouts uh, will be kept. Uh, if you look at the experience of deposit insurance around the world, as uh, Ed Kane and co-authors have done, you find that it generally increases uh, instability rather than reduces instability because it encourages uh, bad banking. It, it creates moral hazard. It subsidizes bank risk taking. Uh, so the way uh, Taleb describes our current financial fragility I like, he says, we've moved from a diversified ecology of banks with varied lending policies to a more homogeneous framework of firms that all resemble one another. Uh, so even if we have fewer failures, when, we, when they do occur, uh, it's a doozy. Uh, that, I'm not quoting him there. <laughs> it's my paraphrase. Um, so why have we moved away from a, or how have we moved away from a diversified ecology of banks? Well, uh, we've imposed unifying, homogenizing regulations on banks so that banks are all expected to pursue pretty much the same strategies. Uh, Taleb's phrase for a system where everybody is supposed to pursue the same strategy, which has been uh, calculated by some higher authority, is an over-optimized system. Right? It's optimized to what, was, what is thought to be currently the set of risks that banks face, but some risks or some events are black swans. That is, they're not forecastable. Uh, Bill Poole warned us about that in the case of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Right? They were not prepared for events that were not within the uh, tails they were estimating. What's the alternative to over-optimization in banking regulation? Uh, it's for banks to practice simple heuristic rules like having an adequate simple capital ratio. Uh, heuristics that have stood the test of time. So not blindly following rules of thumb, but critically evaluating these and dis discerning un under what environments rules of thumb help uh, succeed and under what environments they fail. But even if we haven't yet pinpointed exactly how they succeed, it's a wise idea to follow rules that have enhanced survival uh, experience shows. Right? So the important thing is not that every single bank should pursue an anti-fragile strategy. It's that the system should be anti-fragile by having banks pursue different strategies and letting those. It's good to have innovation and risk taking, but those that uh, innovate in the wrong directions should be free to fail. So I agree with Tom Honig that Basel is exactly the wrong thing to do. It, it over-optimizes in response to what are now thought, okay, Basel I failed, Basel II failed, but Basel III, now we're gonna get it right because we've made it more complicated than ever. I don't think that's the way to go. Thank you. Thank you very much. Robert Hetzel. I certainly will let you know. <laughs> uh, I don't have to say this, but I'm going to say it. Uh, these views are my own. They're not the Richmond, Richmond Feds. You'll see that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or anybody else's. You know, okay, so. Uh, so the title of the session, Avoiding Future Crises, implies that 
there's some systematic procedures for learning from past crises that we can then use in a constructive way to avoid future crises. Well, I'm going to offer a very uh, pessimistic view about whether we have those procedures. And my comments are going to be very much in, the in line with uh, uh, John Taylor's uh, agenda. If we're going to learn, central banks have to articulate what they control and how they exercise that control in terms of models. And they have to explain their behavior in terms of what's systematic about their behavior. Otherwise, we don't have a prayer of, 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 of being able to learn uh, from the past. In contrast to model-based explanations, what we get is, to fill the vacuum uh, too often, is popular explanations of recession that rely on correlation as opposed to causation. In the boom phase of a business cycle, people take on a lot of debt. They're optimistic about the future. In the bust phase, well, they find themselves over leveraged and they try to get out of that excess debt. Um, and the story is that speculative excess requires a purging of the economic body. Correlation becomes causation in this story through, a, through speculative excess and greed, through an anthropomorphization of impersonal market forces in the form of the vilification of unrestrained greed of Wall Street bankers. This sort of story also mines a deep populist vein in American culture, whereby paper wealth and money creation creates financial wealth out of proportion to its productive capacity and therefore uh, requires a bursting of a, of a bubble. Yeah, that's my better profile. Thanks. <laughs> um, so I, I have a quote I just love. Uh, in this spirit, uh, Washington Irving uh, described the 1818-1819 recession and deflation. And I'm going to read this to you. Every now and then, the world is visited by one of these delusive seasons, when the credit system expands to full luxuriance. Everybody trusts everybody. A bad debt is a thing unheard of. The broad way to certain and sudden wealth lies plain and open. Banks become so many mints to coin words into cash, and as the supply of words is inexhaustible, it may readily be supposed that a vast amount of promissory capital is soon in circulation. Nothing is heard but gigantic operations in trade, great purchases and sales of real property, and immense sums made at every transfer. All to be sure as yet exists in promise, but the believer in promises calculates the aggregate as solid capital. Now is the time for speculative and dreaming of designing men. They relate their dreams and projects to the ignorant and credulous and dazzle them with golden visions. The example of one stimulates another. Speculation rises on speculation. Bubble rises on bubble. No operation is thought worthy of attention that does not double or treble the investment. Could this delusion always last? The life of a merchant would indeed be a golden dream, but it is a short as it is brilliant. Okay, now, um, 
uh, actually, I'm, I'm going to take sides, but I'm going to try to be impartial. I'm going I'm to offer you a completely different story that relies on a different set of correlations. And the idea is to make the point that if you really want to understand causation, uh, and if you really want to be able to design policies, you have no choice but to uh, work with models. Okay, uh, Richard Timberlake was a member of the original Money and Banking Workshop uh, at the University of Chicago in the early 1950s, uh, uh, wrote a thesis and offered a very different sort of explanation. The charter of the first bank of the United States had expired inopportunely in 18. 11, right before the War of 1812. The government needed a way to finance the war. It couldn't do, do so uh, sufficiently through uh, tariffs and uh, excise taxes. So it issued small denomination treasury securities. And banks could use those as high-powered money because they were in small denominations. And when they did that, there was an expansion in bank reserves and a corresponding expansion in banknotes, and guess what? Uh, there was an increase in inflation. Now, as the commodity value of a paper dollar fell relative to that of a gold dollar, given the fixed parity of exchange between the two, well, which, which one do you want? <laughs> well, so you, you obviously, if you want to make an expenditure, you're going to take your paper dollar and exchange it for a gold dollar, and you're going to be better off. Banks are faced with losses of reserves. They suspend convertibility. And um, then you go off the gold standard, and inflation proceeds uh, uninterrupted. OK, in 1816, Secretary, Secretary, Secretary of the Treasury uh, Crawford decided to return the country to the gold standard. To do that, the government ran a surplus you could use, you could pay taxes with these uh, government notes, and they contracted the monetary base, and you had deflation and, and recession. So, so here, here are two very different sorts of stories depending upon different sorts of correlations. In the first story, investor sentiment, sentiment animal spirits, uh, overwhelm the working of the price system. In the second story, monetary disturbances disrupt the working of the price system. Um, so the issue is our investor mood swings an irrational manifestation of human fallibility, or are they a consequence of unstable uh, monetary arrangements? Determination of which explanation is correct, I argue, requires the discipline use of economics. But unfortunately, I don't think we see that um, effort, um, especially in central banks. And I think the problem is central banks have developed a language for communicating, which is efficient in terms of for political economy reasons, but militates against um, systematic examination of historical experience because, well, you might have to admit you made a mistake. And that language has two, two aspects. One is the language of discretion. In a common sense way, each period you do the right thing, uh, whether inflation or unemployment's the major problem. And 
if you're doing the right thing each period, if each period policy is optimal, well, if something bad happens, a recession or inflation, it's got to be some kind of external shock that overwhelmed what you were doing. The other aspect of it is to talk about the transmission of your policies through financial markets. You're just one influence in credit markets. And in a recession, when interest rates are low, well, you know, you've done all you can do. You're overwhelmed uh, by, again, by uh, external forces, in this case, the lack of demand for credit. Um, that characterization of policy avoids mention of monetary, po of, of money and money creation. Um, central banks then don't have to talk about seniorage, and they also don't have to explain why uh, money growth and nominal expenditure growth are low in recessions. I have one minute. Okay. Um, so the central banks, uh, I think, too often found their legitimacy on the assumption, the public perception, that they understand how the world works and they understand how monetary policy affects the kinds of variables that we uh, care about. And that legitimacy comes from an ability to talk about the economy in a descriptive way. An encyclopedic knowledge of facts about the economy is taken by the public as evidence that central bankers do, in fact, understand the kind of macroeconomic variables, variables they control and how they exercise that control. And I really think if we're going to move to a world in which monetary instability uh, is not a recurrent source of economic instability, we somehow have to get to the point where um, central banks can uh, talk about what they do, have a conversation with the academic community in terms of uh, models and shocks and uh, impose some sort of discipline on that uh, communication. Okay? Thank you very much. That was extremely disciplined of your timing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, uh, the, after those um, terrific presentations, I'm sure that they have certainly given us a lot of food for thought and I'm sure will we'll provoke many questions. And I'm glad to see that we have some time, particularly if we can take a little bit of time from the coffee break. So if you have a question, put up your hand, wait for, for the microphone to come to you and please say who you are and keep your question reasonably short. Uh, gentleman over there, five rows back. Leonidas Zomanovic from Liberty Fund. I have a question for Mr. Hernick. Uh, the fact that uh, financial uh, managers and directors, they uh, don't have uh, unlimited liability, uh, seems to me a major factor in their willingness to take risks. I'm curious why you haven't considered that in your talk. Uh, I, I recognize your point. Um, we, in banking, uh, before the Federal Reserve was formed and so forth, there were greater degrees of liability for directors as well as managers in the institutions. I have no problem if those were reinstituted. Uh, I doubt that they will be because uh, 
<clears throat> the perceived benefits of a corporate structure and limited liabilities. And I think it has led to some pretty bad outcomes because you do have the agency problem, you do have the safety net and the incentives around that, uh, which means you uh, increase your bonus with the ROE and you increase ROE with leverage and you increase leverage because you have the, the uh, safety net that allows you to do so and so you get some pretty perverse, perverse outcomes. And I'd be very open to reinstituting greater liabilities for management. Now, in the resolution issues, uh, whether it's in Dodd-Frank, but uh, I think in, a, in another context, is at a minimum, if you have to go into the bank, the management uh, and directors should be removed, uh, and at least that element of it be pretty automatic uh, in the process. Uh, more than that, I don't see likely to happen. Thank you. The question there, gentleman six rows back. Yes. Yes, uh, my name is Per Kurovsky, the Voice and Noise Foundation. Uh, we frequently heard, even at this meeting, about pushing banks into risky assets. But isn't it the fact that the current pillar of regulations, capital requirements based on perceived risk, actually push the banks into ex-ante perceived absolutely safe assets and pushed it so much so that they turned the absolutely safe assets into risky assets? So uh, uh, why don't we describe the process as it happened that would sort of ease our understanding of it? Everything, if you do a correlation between our problems, current problems, and what had low capital requirements of the banks, it's a one correlation, complete correlation. Who would like to take that question? Did you, banks pushed first into safe assets, then became risky ones, Lawrence White. Well, when you put uh, an official risk weight on a class of assets and you make capital requirements proportional to that risk weight, banks are going to arbitrage that by looking for the assets whose risk weight is understated. And so they're going to pile into those. And, you know, uh, sovereign debt <laughs> was given a zero risk weight uh, by Basel II. So that's turned out to be a problem. <laughs> That's an <Huh>. understatement. <laughs> no, I mean, I understand the question. I think, again, the safety net encourages leverage. Leverage means you go out on the margin increasingly. And then I do agree. I think when, when central planners try and anticipate future risk, the outcomes are usually bad because you're as likely. I get a lot of criticism with my uh, tangible capital ratio because everything's equal, uh, gets an equal weight. And then I rely on supervision, at least to assess risk. But my point there is, if a central planner underweights a riskier assets and overweights a less risky asset, you get a worse outcome. So you can't, you can't anticipate. Uh, and the thing about the market is it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily smarter than the central planner. It's that it's so diverse. And so it, it adjusts risk on a daily basis. It sees it and has its capital and adjusts that risk. And if it does make a mistake in a system where you do allow failure, then of course it, it corrects itself in the harshest way possible. So that's a much, in the long term, that I agree with those. Uh, it, it is much better to allow the failure to occur. And I, I just think we need to narrow the bank so that we have a greater chance of allowing failure to occur. Question in front. Bill Poole, Cato. Uh, an observation, uh, first of all, uh, and then the question. Uh, the observation is that 
this whole issue <clears throat> is not primarily a matter of the economics. I don't think the economics of dealing, of making these uh, firms less risky is, is really all that complicated. There are lots of things that could be done. Uh, larger capital, substantial, uh, subordinated debt requirement. There are many things that could be done. The issue here is how politically can we put something in place that accomplishes what needs to be done. Uh, for example, would it work if we, uh, given the uh, great degree of distaste for bailouts, uh, suppose we uh, took away the authority of FDIC and the Federal Reserve to provide any bailout support whatsoever beyond the level of the explicitly insured deposits. Tom, what would you think of that idea? Well, good luck. Um, <laughs> I, the, look, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I would prefer a very strict rules-based approach because here's the problem. On the Thursday evening or the Friday, when they come to the Secretary of the Treasury and you say the world is going to end, and you're going to be the one who's remembered for that, you, you're going, if the authority is there, you're going to you tend to bail out. I would. I mean, you know, as harsh as I would like to be, I know what it's like to sit in there, and so it's not going to happen. So the, the issue is to, to narrow it to where you can at least get a higher probability of an orderly resolution or liquidation, either through bankruptcy, which is going to take a lot more work, or through a resolution process. And that's why I want to narrow the institutions as at least. And I think that has some political uh, appeal to, to individuals because of the taxpayer liability of not doing that. And so I think there's a chance there. And that's why I'm very, very strongly supportive of that. There was a question here. Yes, gentleman in the third row. Thank you. My name is Morris McTeague. I'm at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and uh, I'm not an American citizen. Uh, so, Mr. Honig, my question is to you, and I think that the very existence of the FDIC was the cause of the problems that we've just gone through in the Great Recession, and other places that don't have that have not had the same problem. Given that I think you're probably right that you're not going to be able to get rid of the FDIC, there are some other things that you might do. For example, the FDIC might risk rate every bank, and then it might, might make the depositors pay the insurance premium, and then we, the depositors, might make better choices about the banks that we bank with, so that there's some feedback loop, because banking depends on depositors. And at the moment, the depositors are not required to make any kind of discriminatory decision between banks. Unless we bring that back, then I don't think we're going to get to a situation where we enjoy uh, we um, actually achieve Professor White's uh, uh, situation of non-fragility. What do you think? The difficult, yes, the difficulty, I, I understand the suggestion, and, and in fact, the FDIC is beginning to risk weight uh, banks uh, on their premiums. Uh, we, we're not allowing them to specifically identify that as passed on to the depositor. Not that that necessarily would be a bad thing, but I think part of the issue will be in pushing that forward is, all right, will you, in doing that, create a run that creates a systemic problem uh, with some of the institutions? And that will be the impediment to moving that forward. I would, I would you know, I, I argued a decade ago for greater disclosure of exam findings because 
and, and not to have the agency do it, but to have the bank do it. These were the major findings. We found material weakness in this place, and here's what we're going to do to take care of it. And that hit a lot of resistance, enormous resistance. So I don't know that passing this on will necessarily be very well accepted. And what I'm trying to say is narrow the bank to where you can at least manage uh, the uh, crisis uh, somewhat more effectively than what we've been able to do in this last mess. Um, and I do believe in risk weights uh, for the deposit insurance, not the complicated Basel stuff, but through an examination process uh, that's thorough. And most banks, except for the very largest, get a, a very detailed exam. So. Yeah, I'll say something that addresses the last two questions. So everybody agrees that uh, banks took, took too much risk uh, in the recent past. The question is, well, how do you limit that risk? Uh, through more market discipline or through more uh, regulation by regulators. The, quote, problem with the first approach is that if you retract the financial safety net, you also limit the subsidization of, that banks receive from the government guarantee of their liabilities. And politically, that's, that's not going to fly. Okay, so then you go to the next thing. You go to a 2,200-page uh, Dodd-Frank thing, which doubles the amounts of uh, regulators and regulations, and uh, you know a, a new regulation comes out every day. But the problem with that is that these reg each regulation in and of itself seems reasonable, but no human mind can comprehend what the cumulative effect of all these regulations is going to be. So, uh, I, again, I'm sort of pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Gentleman there, yes, six rows back. Uh, thank you, Bert Ely, a banking consultant. Um, in all through this discussion, and specifically in terms of what uh, Tom Honig was talking about, there seems to be this assumption that the safety net has to be a government taxpayer-backed safety net, and that banking regulation and supervision has to be performed by government uh, bureaucrats. Um, uh, I haven't heard any uh, discussion of alternatives to that, such as effectively privatizing banking regulation and its uh, related deposit insurance risk uh, through the, uh, the cross-guarantee concept that I developed uh, some number of, of years ago. Isn't it time we start thinking outside the government box and look at uh, true market-driven mechanisms for regulating banks and uh, the related uh, uh, de uh, deposit guarantee? Be interested in your thoughts on that, and particularly from uh, Tom. Um, Bert, I, I, yeah, I'm familiar with your, uh, somewhat familiar with your cross-guarantee, and I, I understand what you're saying. There's, there's, there's an issue that I think is there uh, that is driving a lot of this, and that is <clears throat> um, there is a, FDIC has a reinsurer. I mean, so we may be government and we may collect these funds, but the reinsurer is the federal government, and everyone knows it. And that's critical. So if you had a pri and the reason is if you have a systemic crisis or you have a large enough institution, everyone knows there's not enough insurance uh, funded to take care of that crisis. So you need a reinsurer, and that's the federal government. It was tried with states, um, and uh, you, uh, they all failed because you, 
once you get the, uh, a systemic problem, there wasn't enough funds, people ran from the insurance fund. In fact, that's a little bit of what I'm concerned about with central clearing um, uh, as well. But so, so the problem is, yeah, we, you might be able to do it, but in the ultimate, you know, the government will be stepping in uh, so long as you have that safety net. Now, uh, maybe I'm wrong, and, and if I were, I'd like to see it tried, but I don't, I don't see it working. Uh, Bert, if we go back and look at uh, what happened before the FDIC Act was passed, we see kind of what you're suggesting. I mean, uh, bank clearinghouse associations took on responsibility for setting membership standards. And when there was a rumor that a bank was in trouble, they would send the audit team immediately in, and then they would report the results and say, uh, here's what we found that's wrong, and here's the plan to uh, fix it. And in the meantime, uh, we stand behind the bank. But if they don't carry through on the plan to fix it, we kick them out of the clearinghouse. Thank you. I think we've got time for a couple more questions. Yes, right three quarters of the way back. Yes, gentlemen there. Uh, my name is Hans Koenig. I'm a graduate student at the School of Advanced International Studies of Johns Hopkins University. And um, I'm just wondering about the international aspects of this, because coming from Europe, obviously, um, one of the reasons why the, ba the Basel II and Basel III regulations are so complicated is because you need to get lots of countries around the world to sign up to them, and then they, they demand exceptions, they demand special rules for their banking systems. Um, how do you get around that, and is it even necessary to get uh, most or all countries uh, to sign up, or would it be entirely sufficient uh, to do this at a, like a U.S. level? Thank you. <laughs> do we need Basel II or an international agreement at all? Well... <clears throat> It would be, uh, well, you don't need it in the long run uh, because there, I think the, re and this is my interpretation, so anyone can challenge me on it, but I think one of the reasons you had Basel I was that you had in, in that period, you had uh, uh, certain banks, the Japanese bank particularly, were highly leveraged and they were, in fact, very active in the market and there was a concern uh, on this international competitiveness and so forth. So we developed Basel I to make sure we had a, a, a comparable measure across. And the fact of the matter is, uh, some argued at that time that we shouldn't worry about it because if they are over leveraged, they will have it and it will self-correct, kind of the theme here. And so my point is this, that I think we need to, what we found with Basel I, Basel II, Basel 2.5 is what someone else said, a very increased fragility as a result. And, and we see that because of the leverage that it enabled and the games that were allowed to be played. So you need a tangible equity that can be measured the same across all banks off the balance sheet. And there are some issues there, I realize. But at least that gives you a common measure. And what you find is that those countries that insist on strength over time will dominate. And I, I was at a meeting recently, and I know that Sweden is uh, increasing their demands for their bank capital above the Basel requirements uh, by a substantial amount. And one of the concerns by some others uh, is that that'll give them a competitive advantage because it'll be so much stronger. And so you can see the good effects of that. Uh, and, and so I would, I, would, I mean, I, you know, I, I just don't think Basel will solve the problem. It is so incredibly complicated. I don't know how many people has actually read this thing. I have. It is, it is uh, almost 
impossible, and I think that it will be very difficult to implement, and I think we need a simpler measure that's comparable and stronger, and I think we'll all benefit from it, uh, Europe as well as the U.S. Yeah, just briefly, I, the only reason you would need an international agreement on what regulatory restrictions are to be placed on banks is if you want to restrict competition among banks internationally. One last question. Yes, right at the back. Hi, David Merkel, Olaf Blog. Um, I'm an actuary by training, and aside from AIG, we really didn't have that many problems in the insurance industry through this crisis because, in general, we match assets and liabilities, and the amount of capital that's held in the insurance industry is relatively high relative to where the banks were. Why shouldn't similar standards be applied to the banks? Because from my view, you know, using the repo markets and other ways, the banks were systemically borrowing short and lending long, and that's what leads to crises. Why wouldn't this? Why wouldn't a stricter matching be a better idea? Well, <laughs> you want me to try? Yeah. Well, first of all, I I do agree. I think the insurance industry is better matched, but by design, and, and you know, life insurance, whatever it is, by design, commercial banking is a a. It is part of the intermediation process between short-term and long-term. It's designed that way, and the offset to that was very high capital standards in the beginning. And we've allowed that to fall away, and now we have, we have the consequences of doing that. Plus, then we put an insurance fund around it that allowed the leverage even to get more. So I, th I think the model is designed is as it was intended, that is, intermediating short-term to longer-term. Uh, there were restrictions at one time. For example, commercial real estate was highly restricted, uh, and we've dropped those aside, the kinds of activities we've dropped aside, and so forth. And I think we do need to strengthen it, as I've suggested. But I don't think you can make banks insurance companies. I don't think you can get them perfectly matched. You know, real bills doctrine, whatever you want to try, but I'm not sure. Uh, I'd be very open to other ideas on that, but that's what I think is a reaction that I get all the time. Uh, maturity mismatching, borrowing short and lending long, is one of many risks that banks take on. And the objective is not to eliminate risk taking by banks, but to create a system in which prudent risks, risks where the return justifies it, are taken and not imprudent risks. And to do that, you take away subsidies to risk taking. So uh, a certain amount of maturity mismatching was seen in banking systems even before deposit insurance. But it's gotten a lot worse. I think that's an appropriate place to end on. Thank you all uh, very much. That was a terrific first panel. Lived up, I think, to the, the Cato's uh, tradition of bracing questions, uh, bracing analysis, bold ideas. And I hope uh, the rest of the day continues in the same vein. Thank you all very much. Thank you.